Christ through me. It's not always the case. Some of us have stumbled through this week. Some of us have fallen into the sin of worry or anxiety. Some of us are overcome uh, with the world. Some of us have lived lives this week of covetousness or envy for our short 80 or 90 years on earth, if we have it good. And Father, we need to be reminded uh, when we look around this world and we wonder why everybody else has it easier than we do. Yet we're trying to be faithful and it just feels like it's not working and we wonder if, Christ, if this whole thing is just some big kind of cosmic joke, all of these thoughts can be oppressive to us until we enter the sanctuary of God. And we remember the reality of our destiny and others' destiny. Uh, We remember the reality on this Ascension Sunday that you right now, Christ, intercede for us. You're our maker, you're our defender, you're our redeemer, you're our friend. You're advocating us before a God who knows us and loves us and sent you to cover all the cost so that we, by your Spirit, can live a life enjoying you, our Savior, and drawing near to you. So that when we slip this week, when we stumble this week, may we be so confident in the loving grace, Christ, of you to us that we're willing to let you guide us again by your right hand. And we're willing to let the Father undergird us with his everlasting arms, and we're willing to let the Holy Spirit prick our consciousness or comfort us that we're going to be okay. Uh, I'm ready already just to skip this sermon and to sing about that day when we will feast in the house of Zion. And in this world where we're so myopic in the way that we live, may we lift up our hearts, our minds, may we look to you the author and perfecter of our faith. Uh, Help us to maintain today uh, a spirit of worship. Of course, we can't leave this time without praying for our sister churches uh, and the giants of the denomination that we've lost this week. We pray for the Smallman family and the loss of Steve. What a life worthy of the calling. We pray for uh, the Reeder family, the loss of Harry, and we pray for Uh, The whole Briarwood Church, which is just trying to get their bearings and figure out what to do when they suddenly lost their pastor. We pray for the Keller family and uh, the Redeemer Network, who are all uh, across that city of Manhattan, all grieving and trying to figure out what they're going to do. Pray that you give them all hope and peace and comfort them. And now, Father, speak to us through your word. It's a difficult topic. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to uh, intellectually grasp it, but also to emotionally draw near to you. We pray in your name. Amen. The topic before us, I'm just going to jump right in, because the topic before us is a big one, which is, when is association endorsement? Uh, That's a huge topic that I get in my office all the time. Now, it doesn't come with those 
forms. People don't often say to me, hey, Andy, I need to philosophically figure out when is association endorsement. But the issues that they're presenting is, can I be engaged with this culture and keep my witness? Can I go to this event and still be called a Christian? When is association with something endorsement of that thing? And it's getting really complicated. Let me put it for you in a metaphor. Consider, for example, uh, your college friend calls you up and says, I'd love to see you. I haven't seen you for years. I'd love to meet you. Uh, I'm in town. And you say, I'd love to meet you too. I haven't seen you in years. Uh, there's this great restaurant that I go to all the time. I know everybody there. I know all the waiters. I know the owners. I know everybody. Let's meet at this restaurant at noon. And they say, okay, I'd love to meet you there. And so you go there and you know everybody in the restaurant. You're looking forward to seeing your friend. Your friend has a table in the middle of the restaurant. And as soon as you see them, they stand up your friend because they're so excited. They say, Andy, I'm over here. And they're wearing a, a Biden-Harris shirt. And they're reading uh, a Bill Clinton biography. And you have to second guess, am I going to go sit with them or not? Now, everybody's nervous. You, you actually don't know whether to laugh or not. <laughs> so flip it. Uh, you'd say, Andy, I'm over here. Come sit with me. And they're wearing a Magna hat and a Trump shirt. And you have to decide, like, am I associating with them? Like, what's everybody in the restaurant going to think? Do they think I'm going to believe that if I'm just sitting with them? You know, we, we bump into those things all the time. Now, it's way more complicated than that, right? And it happens on the right, and it happens on the left. Both protests and boycotts of things that we don't want to be associated with. The obvious one today is Bud Light. Uh, the less obvious one is a couple years ago, Kendall Jenner was in a commercial handing a Pepsi to a cop, and it was right during the big defund the police movement, and Pepsi shares dropped also. It's the decision you have to make whether or not you stand for the national anthem, or whether or not when you play for the MLS, you wear that gay pride symbol. John MacArthur, he's a pastor out in California, he won't even, I disagree with this by the way, he won't speak at a conference where there's gonna be a female on the platform during the conference because he doesn't want to associate with them at all. Or it's even more complicated than that. Do I make, I'm a really good cake maker. I'm the best one in Boston. And this couple who I don't agree with their marriage wants me to make a cake for them. Do I make the cake or not? By making the cake, am I associating and endorsing those morals? Or can I just say I'm a really good cake maker and just make the cake? I have so many people in my office from this congregation Husband and wives that say to me time and time again, Andy, we just can't get on the same page. We don't know if we can go to my daughter's wedding or not. I disagree with her marrying that guy, or I disagree with her marrying that girl. If I go, am I endorsing it? Can I pay for the honeymoon? Or how do I do this? How do I maintain my holiness, my convictions, and at the same time, reach this culture that we're in. It's only going to get more and more complicated. I had a contractor who asked me, hey, Andy, they want me to build this thing for them in the basement. I totally disagree with it. Do I build it? Am I somehow endorsing their behavior by building this thing? This question is not going to go away, so how do we solve it? because culture is continuing to change, how do we live as Christians in this culture, reaching the culture and yet having personal holiness? The only hope we have is to meditate on, to look at, 
to observe, to remember the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. That's our only hope for trying to figure this out. So, uh, in my business, I would say we have all of the cabooses lined up behind the locomotive. We're ready now to leave the station. I'm going to read a lot of scripture to you because we got to get started of a framework for uh, how we should look at this. One main scripture and then a bunch of other scriptures. But that's good because you, you actually need to hear from scripture, not from me. Matthew chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And let me, let me pause there and say, tax collectors in this day and age were not the IRS. Now, nobody, universally, nobody really loves the IRS, right? But that being said, these guys were way worse than that. They were completely manipulating the taxes. And so nobody wanted to be associated with them. He rose and he followed him. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and the disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so here's the situation. Here Jesus is associating with all the riffraff of society. And uh, the Pharisees, the religious people, they're the ones that are looking at Jesus and asking the disciples, wait, you said he was the Savior. You said he was going to come save the Jews. You said he was the Holy One of Israel. That's what you're telling us. How could he possibly hang out with that bunch? Don't you know they're going to corrupt him? Don't you know we don't want to be associated with them? Jesus, hearing of all those rumors, said, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I've come for those who are sick. Now, we've got to balance it out. Because Jesus wasn't always just like going along with everything. There's times where he was very harsh. He made the cat of nine tails and ran out the money changers from the temple. It takes about two to three hours to make that. So that was an intentional act. And there's other times where we see Jesus being very harsh with people. For example, the Pharisees, Matthew 23. But woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. <laughs> Just imagine this is not meek and mild Jesus with a dove resting on his shoulder. This is Jesus bringing the heat to these people. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. In other words, you see people and you slam the door of heaven in front of them and say, you can't get in. For you neither enter yourselves or allow those to enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Then there's other times where people, we'll come back to that, there's other times where people uh, are encouraged through Scripture to disassociate with people. For example, it says, uh, Ephesians 5, Therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you're the light of the world. Walk as children of the light. 
For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Titus chapter 3. We'll go to the next one. As a person who stirs up the vision, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with them. In other words, you know that person that in your business or in your culture or in your church or in your Sunday school, they're just, people are very good at it. They're dividing, but they're just sowing seeds of discord, trying to get you to believe little things that aren't true, giving little nuggets to try to divide that family or that church or that environment or your team. You know, if the coach only did this, then maybe we'd start winning. Just little seeds of the vision. Scripture says, talk to him about it once, talk him to him about it twice. Don't associate with him after that. 2 Thessalonians 3. Now we commend you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Keep away from them. I'm going to skip the next two passages, but here's what I want to highlight. Here's what we see from Scripture. From what we can tell, Jesus is long-suffering with those that don't know the power of the gospel. For those who are sinners, for those who are broken, for those who are kicked out of cultural's normal streams, Jesus seems to run towards them and be with them in his presence. The leper, the bleeding woman, the blind guy crying out for help, the poor, the adulterous woman that everybody else is running from, Jesus runs towards. But when it comes to believers who are supposed to know the gospel and say they're following him, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he tends to be very harsh with them. Henry Krabbenam, he's a scholar. Years ago, Krabbenam told me, this is probably 25 years ago, I was having lunch with Henry, and he said, uh, we were talking about cultural issues, and he said, Andy, if somebody's not a believer, I treat them like a gnat that I'm trying to keep alive and get into a jar just trying to you know push them there but if somebody's a believer and they have the same problems I come down on them with an iron fist and a velvet hand now here's what happens we typically do the opposite as Christians as Christians we're mostly prone as I think Neil pointed this out last week to being self-righteous we're typically chastising the people that don't know Jesus instead of weeping with them and the people that do know Jesus we just cover over their sin and their abuse and don't want to confront them because we don't want to be holier than thou and don't want to upset the apple cart. In these scriptures that I read, the only people that Jesus says disassociate with them are the believers, not the unbelievers, which is pretty fascinating. And now Jesus going to all of these people, taking light into darkness. Here's what we can do, friends. We can bring in the lost without losing your holiness. Because what Christianity should be, our view of culture as Christians is really astounding. We, at the same time, give an unnerving amount of mercy and grace to a world who desperately needs it with an unwavering commitment to our personal holiness. And both of those things can be held together. So back to the main text. One time, only Jesus said go and learn what this means and there was a time where he said I desire mercy not sacrifice now most of us most Christians still think that what Christianity is about is sacrifice you sacrifice your time 
your money. You sacrifice going away for the weekend so you can be at church. Uh, you, you sacrifice uh, your Sunday night so you can go to a community group. And then maybe Jesus will let you in. And I'm not saying that we're, we're not supposed to sacrifice. We are. What I am saying is mercy leads the train. For example, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How could we not be conformed to this world? Each generation, it takes a, a different form. But one way this world is conforming us is this. Just get around your people that think like you and talk like you and then lob insults at the other person without ever talking to them. Don't be conformed to the world, to the patterns of the world like that. But be renewed by your mind, discerning what the will of God is, what's good and pleasing and acceptable and perfect. And so four quick points. Um, number one is this. Going back to that text, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. How do we flesh that out? Well, the first way we flesh that out is by giving mercy to individuals. Uh, I've got two stories, one I've told you, one I haven't. Um, one story that I've told you, but I just love it so much for how do we actually work this kind of thing out in our lives. Uh, Jack Miller was a pastor at Westminster Seminary and started Surge, World Harvest, now Surge Missions Organization just kind of a legend in my world. He was speaking at a conference uh, with a bunch of other pastors, and they were at a restaurant late at night. Jack was in his 80s at this point, and uh, he left the table, and nobody noticed. Saw he was going to the bathroom. Anyway, he didn't come back for like 30 minutes. They couldn't find the guy. Checked the bathroom, asked the bartender, checked with the waiter. Has anybody seen Jack? Now they're starting to get a little worried. It's like 45 minutes. Can't find Jack. He's 80. Like, this is our one job, to get him to the conference on time and they they've lost them they've lost jack miller and so uh they go outside kind of desperate and there's a public park across from the bar restaurant and they see jack laying down in the wet grass at like 10 o'clock at night on his back and they're worried so they run over there oh jack did you pass out there jack is it seen this drunk water kyle the bar and the the guy went laid down to try to sleep it off in the middle of that wet field Jack saw him, knew he needed Jesus, so he left the party, walked outside, laid down on the grass beside him, and was sharing the gospel with him. And I mean, that's just, he's not endorsing the behavior at all, but he's willing to be a presence with a guy who is desperately hurting. I, I got emotional, not because of Jack, because I knew this next story was coming. Um, lost a dear friend uh, and mentor Tim Keller this week and uh, I've got a lot of Tim stories he's been so gracious to me uh, met him probably 15 years ago I was at this think tank and they needed two young pastors to be a part of it so they invited me and Greg Thompson a son of this church to be in it and uh, the first night we were there in Chicago uh, Tim, we hadn't met each other. He said, let's go to dinner. So we went to dinner, and uh, you want to know what we talked about? The Pittsburgh Steelers all night long. That's all we talked about. And he would always return and answer my uh, calls and emails. Even at the height of his popularity, he was speaking to British Parliament, and I sent him an email um, concerning an issue with 
Elizabeth and I, and uh, he, he wrote me back and answered my question, and then he sent me another email uh, a little bit later and said, you know I wrote a book about marriage. You don't have to ask me all of this. I was, and I wrote him back and I said, I didn't want to pay for it. Um, but part of that think tank we had, I don't think I've ever told you this story. I just love it. We had, I negotiated this deal to have one guy debate with Tim, both PCA people, to show the denomination that two people could disagree and be friends. And so it was my idea, and so I was at the head table, and it was me, uh, Brian Chappell, who's moderating, this guy who I won't mention because he doesn't look the best in the story, but I like him, uh, and then Tim. And some of this guy's kids were kind of running around, and then there's me and Elizabeth, and um, I'm like, hey, Elizabeth, there's Tim. And if it's not Matthew McConaughey, she doesn't care. And she was like, he's bald. I'm, he's Tim Keller. Like, what are we doing? And so we were at that table. This kid of this pastor had all of these, like, Dungeon and Dragons, like, fantasy kind of figurines. And he keeps trying to get his dad to engage with him. And his dad keeps brushing him off because we're discussing the debate rules. There's two or 3,000 people in the room. It's 10 minutes before they go on stage and debate. Tim sees that, grabs the kid, not his son, this other guy's son, puts him on his lap, takes off his reading glasses, grabs the figurines, puts them all on the table, and says, I want you to tell me about every one of them. And for like, the next 15 minutes, we were late getting him up there. The kid, this little 10-year-old kid is telling Tim Keller, if this guy fights this guy, he wins. This is this guy's special. And Tim is all in. I re, I'll never forget them walking up to do the debate. And the one guy said to the other guy, I don't even know what we're doing. And Tim put his big mutton paw around him and said, we'll be fine. It's mercy to individuals. It's looking for the people in our environments, on your sports team, in the restaurant, in your community group, at your workplace, who are somehow hurting and not getting any affection and attention and giving them mercy. The mercy of God was way, import, way more important than the sacrifice of the debate. Showing the mercy of God to others. Now, friends, you can do this. You can... Find people and give them mercy. Don't put them on your laps, but you can find people. Take off your reading glasses. Ask them how their day is. Quickly, the next point, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Mercy in our calling. We're going to get a little bit more to the crux of the issue. When we talk about calling, there's two parts to it. One is the, what we call the principle of the conscience, and the other one is our convictions. The principle of the conscience means your conscience might be pricked differently in a way than my conscience is. So back to my office where some of those couples are in there. I've had so many times where in the marriage, the husband and the wife can't even come to an agreement about whether or not to go to the wedding. And their consciences are pricked differently. They both feel like they have to. And so sometimes there's not a one-size-fits-all. For example, just think about the exile. Uh, Esther used her beauty and put herself through a year regimen in order to save the Jews from Haman. But Jeremiah 
didn't play that game. He just wept the whole time and called people to lament. And Ezekiel didn't play that game either. He tried to create a new vision for what it would be like for people to enter back into Jerusalem. And David did it a different way. I mean, not David, Daniel did it a different way. Daniel said, I don't want anything to do. I can't associate with these fatty foods and this wine. I'm gonna disassociate so that you see I'm holy. But then Joseph jumped all in politically and tried to ascend up to power so he could save his family. All of those greats that we talk about, all because of their conscience and how they're made and their gifting, did it differently. Here's the point. We have to, as Christians, quit being theologically lazy, which leads to intellectual snobbery and saying, I'm not going to think about these things. I'm going to bring out the same key catchphrases. What the Lord requires of us in this day and age is to think deeply about how the Holy Spirit is challenging you to please him. And it might be different. You might say, I'm convicted in my conscience. I can't watch that movie anymore. I'm convicted in my conscience I can't listen to that music anymore because I don't think it's pleasing to the Lord. I'm convicted in my conscience that, that every time I play, I had a friend who did this, every time I play pickup basketball and I end up throwing a punch at somebody, I've just got to find another sport. I think he's doing pickleball now. He's probably still punching people. I don't think that goes away just because you change your sport. But nonetheless, he was like, this is, a, this is not a safe place for me to be in. I get too worked up. I'm convicted in my conscience. I can't be on that app anymore. Uh, that's all I do. What we have to do, friends, Christians, is figure out how do we please the Lord? Like, what's, what's the way that we live life that we can please God and give unnerving amounts of mercy and grace to those that don't know him? The second part is the convictions. We're going to have shared convictions, and we're going to have not shared convictions. And so thankful that Neil uh, preached what a great sermon last week, uh, and it dovetails perfectly with this. This is a little bit different, but you'll see the connection points. When you're convicted, there's co-centric circles of how you live out your convictions. First of all, uh, there is concern. Let me, I'll just speak honestly. Everybody, if you're a Christian, everybody has to be concerned about the horror of abortion and the sin of it. Right? We all, we all, if you're a Christian, we all share that concern. And you might have different ways of how that should be played out, but we all share that concern. A few of you might be responsible, meaning you might want to serve at a crisis pregnancy center. And an even smaller few of us will be influential, meaning you might be a senator that can actually adjust legislation, or you might. Let's take another one, poverty. All of us have to be concerned about the poor. If you're a Christian, you have to be concerned about the poor. Uh, a few of us will be responsible. You're going to give your time and effort to uh, making sandwiches and going downtown or uh, working with Miracle Hill. And the even smaller few might be influential in trying to figure out the larger systems for how it works. But it's not all going to be the same. The goal of all of it is to figure out what our convictions are. Because as Schaefer said, Francis Schaefer, 1976, said this, most people catch their presuppositions from their family and surrounding society the way that a child catches the measles. But people with understanding realize that their presuppositions should be chosen after a careful consideration of which worldview is true. Meaning, Schaefer says, most Christians are just going along with the lazy river. 
You're not even thinking about where you're convicted. You're not even thinking about your conscience. You're not even thinking about how you can live your life for him. Here's a simple but profound truth. If there are no absolutes by which to judge society, the society is the absolute. Boy, that was 1976. That is so true now. You rip out of culture the absolutes, society becomes the absolute. And then it just becomes a moving target. Everybody's trying to figure it out. Two more quick points. So how do we work this out further? I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We work it out by giving mercy to the world. Probably the easiest way for you to think about how you interact with culture is to view yourself as an ambassador. Ambassadors go to foreign countries to represent another country. They take on some of those customs of that country, and yet they never lose their identity. Uh, and, and so, for example, there's a, a missionary term called peregrination, and it's a term which means to go on a long walk. And in the sixth century, the way they did mission work, the Celtics, was by peregrination. I love this. They would pack their bags, and they would just start walking. They would pack their bags for like a three-month journey, and they would just start walking until they found a village that didn't know Jesus. And then they would just post up there until they got a chance to tell everybody. And then they go peregrinate again. They go for another long walk to find somebody else. And they would just do that for three or four months on the journey, and then they'd come back home, refresh, make some money so they have supplies, and they go do it again. And oftentimes, the old Celtic Christians, when they would row their boats to those little obscure islands where people don't know about Jesus, the, island, the boat would hit the island, they would bend their knee as soon as they got to that island, and they would pray on the beach, and then they would stand up and they would declare... The kingdom of God is now here. They don't mean that militantly. They mean that we're here to bring light. And now, friends, that's what we do as ambassadors. Look, you go to your soccer, soccer practice, and if you're a Christian, you can say before you step over that line, the kingdom of God is now here. Because I'm a Christian. I'm going to play hard, but I'm also going to look for those that need mercy. You go to a restaurant, you say, the kingdom of God is now here because there's hurting people here, and I'm here to bring life. You, you go to some recovery group or a divorce group, and you say, the kingdom of God is now here. You go to your business tomorrow morning. If you're a Christian, the kingdom of God is now there. And the last thing, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want to end by you giving mercy to yourself. Back to that scene in Matthew chapter 9. We see Jesus in there dining with the tax collectors and dining with the sinners. We see the Pharisees, the religious people standing on the outside. We see the disciples getting questioned. Where are you in that scene? Most of us are on the outside when we should see ourselves on the inside. That if People only knew what we really thought in our hearts, what we believed in our minds. Everybody would be asking the questions of us, why does Jesus associate with them at all? Hey, just because you clean up well, and you all do, you all look stunning today, doesn't mean you're not a horrible sinner. Just because 
you've grown in your sanctification and you don't feel like the tax collector or the sinner as much as you used to, just because you've grown in your sanctification, it doesn't mitigate the reality that your identity is rooted in your justification. I realize only 10 of you will understand what I mean by that sentence, but go and learn what that means. Yes, we have to grow in our personal holiness, but at the end of the day, we are justified by faith in Christ, not by our sacrifice, not by our morality. And think about Jesus. There on the cross, all the people, except for a few women, who said, I don't want to be associated with him. All the disciples fled. A few women weeping, but the disciples going, I'm embarrassed about my God. Looks like we lost. He said he was going to bring back the kingdom. He's up there dying. This is embarrassing. What, what do we do? Let's go lock ourselves in the room. We're completely lost now. We have no idea. Our, our king has died. I guess what he said wasn't true. A few women willing to associate with him, and then a bunch of Roman soldiers, some playing games, some fighting over his clothes, some trying to decide when they're going to break his legs, and your Savior dying for us. And I want you to think of, if you would for a second, your most embarrassing moment. It's a common, you should know that, because, you know, you're a Christian, you go to a community group, it's like an icebreaker. What's your most embarrassing moment? People go around. Everybody's got one. It's, it's, everybody's been embarrassed or shamed in this world. I've got about 125 off the top of my head I can give you. But think about, you. I don't want to be cheesy, but you might, if you're distracted, you might need to close your eyes because I really want you to go there emotionally. Think about that time when you felt all alone. Think about that time when you were embarrassed. Think about that time where you are caught red-handed doing something you shouldn't do, gossiping about somebody looking at something you shouldn't be looking at. Think about that time where your life didn't turn out the way you thought it would and you think everybody's talking about you. You show up at the club or restaurant, people kind of look at you, you just assume everybody now thinks about me this way. Think about that moment where you're shameful and feel embarrassed and lonely. At that moment, Jesus says, you're mine. That one's with me. That girl, that guy, that's my son, that's my daughter. At those worst moments of your life is when Jesus runs towards you when everybody else has run away from you. And he's not scared to associate with you all at the same time while not endorsing your sin. But he doesn't run away from you because he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 2, I don't know if you've ever realized this, the next part of the verse, I'm not ashamed to call you my brothers. On this day, on Ascension Sunday, right now, Jesus lives, and before the heavenly host who's looking down, seeing all of the mess we are, Jesus says, I know they're a mess. I'm not ashamed to call them my brothers. I've died for them already, and I'll bring them home. In closing, I was with... Um, dear friend of mine, Stephen Jones, this week on Zoom. He's a missionary in England, and we, we talk together every couple weeks. And uh, we were talking about, oddly enough, counseling theories. 
and how to pastor people in certain situations. And he said, he's working with some um, victims now. It's kind of his main work. He said, Andy, uh, what I've found is uh, some people are just naked and broken, and the beauty is taking the gospel to them and covering them with the righteousness of Christ and, and saying, you don't have to be shameful and naked anymore. I've got you. Christ has covered you. But then other people are self-righteous. This is my counter to him. And some of those people, you have to take the towel or the sheet, and you have to go to them and wrap it around. This is metaphorical. This doesn't happen in my office. Wrap it around them and say, take all those dirty grave clothes of your pride off. Take all of that dirty self-righteousness off. I'm going to cover you up while you do it, and you repent now because Jesus wants you to wear these new clothes to figure out how to please him and to give unnerving amounts of mercy to this world without judgment, also while maintaining your personal holiness and convictions. It's the very call of God on our lives. Now, Father, we pray that 